Hello, everyone. It's been a while since you have seen me um, because we were really practicing social distancing when we found out. Um, but it's nice to see you all again from the podium or up front. I'm just going to pray one more time. Dear Lord, I ask that you speak through me today. You fill my heart with your spirit and that my message be one that is also yours. Amen. A week or so ago, I had a dream. It wasn't like Martin Luther King's dream. Um, it was really more of a nightmare. And what's a little ironic about this dream and that it was a nightmare is that it was of a social gathering. You know, we've been affected by COVID when the extroverts are having nightmares about social gatherings. But that's not really what was the cause of this nightmare. So here I was, I'm at this social gathering and I'm just kind of mingling about. There's a lot of people there. I hardly know any of them. I'm just kind of weaving my way through and being like, hi, excuse me, sorry. And I come across somebody from my past my childhood crush. We, we grew up together, we met when I was three, I was best friends with his sister, and we haven't spoken to each other in probably like about six years now, just because I live here, he lives where I grew up. So we had a lot of catching up to do. We exchange greetings and we talk about each other's lives. He tells me about his kids and I, tell him about Seth and I starting a family, but all of a sudden the tone of the conversation begins to change. The conversation is no longer pleasant, but now my career is in question. And he says to me, Dana Ray, are you really good enough for ministry? Are you a good enough person to do God's work? I remember being in my dream state, being completely taken by surprise by this. And I ask him, what do you mean? And he goes on to describe all the things that make me inadequate to do God's work. And I start to try and defend myself in as civil way as I possibly can. I try and explain myself, but I can tell it's not working. And he leaned back as if to distance himself by a couple inches and like that was enough to release his ownership of the conversation. He leans back, he crosses his arms, and in the same way he always did when we were kids, he said, with a slight chuckle and a grin, whatever you say, Dana Ray. And I felt in my dream state, it was like I could, I was like, it was so real. I felt my brain move from cognitive to limbic and I was filled with rage. And I was like, no. He was dismissing me. He's already made up his mind. I'm not good enough. And the rest of the dream is me pursuing him in this fight to tell him, no, I am enough. 
I am good enough, just trying to prove that I am worthy of this calling. I could feel the adrenaline. I could feel myself breathing. It felt like, you know those dreams when you feel like you're running a marathon? It felt like that. And I could feel the adrenaline coursing through my body. And then I could feel in this dream as it went on, my adrenaline rush slowly come down and just feeling tired and hopeless. And at that point in the dream, I paused. I stopped yelling at him. And I looked around, and everybody was agreeing with him. I could see it in everybody's eyes that I wasn't enough. And I listened to the words I was saying, and I realized that everything I was now saying was just proving him correct. And everything I was now doing was proving him correct. And that I wasn't enough. And as we look at the Bible, we see these incredible characters like Moses, who did God's work, who commanded the plagues, who parted the Red Sea, who took a completely lawless group of misfits and raised them and brought them to God's promise. And I look at Moses and I know that I am no Moses. We look at Elijah. He's probably one of my favorite prophets. He does some of the coolest miracles. He commanded a drought. He was fed by ravens. He brought a young boy back to life. He called fire from heaven. He purged Israel of false prophets. And then at the end, he's taken up to heaven to be with God. And I know that I am no Elijah. You look at David, somebody who's called a man after God's own heart, a fierce warrior, and I know right away that I am no David. And you look at Paul, this church planter, who planted many churches who spent his life serving God with all that he had to the point of suffering. And I have never suffered for God. My life is so blessed. I am no Paul. I am not enough for this calling. Not being enough has been a theme for me. It's been a battle I've been waging for as long as I can remember. The question of whether or not I am enough for God has been one that I have fought since my childhood. As a kid, I was loud and larger than life, like I still sometimes am. But underneath all of that, it was a front. I was quirky, and I was lost. I remember feeling like I lived three separate lives. My church life, which was the one on the path of perfection, the one I knew I was supposed to pursue, but never felt good enough there. 
my school life where I rebelled and my home life where I was seen and known by five people, but because I felt so flawed on the inside, that feeling of inadequacy made me feel exposed because they actually saw me. They could see what I was feeling. That's, I was always trying to prove it. It seems like when you don't feel like you're good enough, you do two things. You either just give up or you spend the rest of your life trying to prove that you are enough. So that's what I did. At school, in my efforts to be liked and cool enough, I swore very eloquently like a second language. I bullied the kids that it was cool to bully, something I really regret now. And I dated the first guy who said he liked me even though I knew he didn't because somehow being in a relationship was evidence that I was good enough for someone. At home, I miraculously never swore. I could step off the bus and be completely transformed. It was my mission to be the perfect daughter in the eyes of my parents, so I helped with the chores, I weeded the garden, I cleaned the house, and whenever possible, I nagged my sister to be better, transferring my feelings of inadequacy onto her to make me look better. And at church, I collected the offering, I led song service, I participated in Sabbath school, I even tried to lead it a couple times and did really, really bad. I tried to preach a couple times, but I had no idea what I was doing. Also really, really bad. And I even did songs, not songs, there was special music, which, as you should all know by now, absolutely terrifies me. It's like, preaching is here, but special music is like, whew, terrifying. I don't know why, but it is. But the point is, I made every effort, I did everything I possibly could to get some sort of feedback from someone that I was at least worthy of their affection or worthy of their approval. I had really no identity. And at no place did I ever feel enough. At church, I felt the most inadequate. And I felt like there were people there that looked at me and knew that I was not enough. My crush, on the other hand, he was perfect. He was handsome. He was quiet and well-behaved. He was strong, he was faster than me, he was older than me. He was hardworking and he had self-control. Most importantly, he always seemed like he was so close to God. And I knew it, and everybody at the church there knew it too, that this was somebody who was enough for church and enough for God. So as a small child, we're not even talking teenager. 
I determined that the most logical solution was that I was going to marry him someday. And in doing so, somehow, he would make me worthy. That because he was such a good Christian, he would then make me a better Christian. And all of us as adults, we know that's silly and naive because you can't change anyone except yourself. But it's not really silly, it's mostly sad. Because as a young girl, younger than even 10, I thought the only way to be good enough in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the church was to marry up. Marry up to a boy who clearly wasn't interested, was mostly annoyed, who would never see me as an equal, and was just as lost as I was. We were children, we were lost, but when I look at the Bible, I realize that each of those characters were just as lost as I was. Moses, there was a time that he tried to save Israel by himself, and all he ended up doing was murdering somebody and running away. Yes, Elijah depended on God for daily survival, but when it came time to stand before Jezebel, he cowered and hid in a cave for lack of faith. Yes, David is called a man after God's own heart, but we know that he was far from perfect. And God himself said that there was too much blood on his hands to be worthy enough to build the temple. And yes, Paul planted churches and fought tirelessly for the Christian faith, but before Paul was Paul, before God, Paul was Saul. And he was a murderer of Christians. Neither one of them were enough, and neither am I. Eventually, after my dream rampage at the embodiment of my shame and my feelings of inadequacy, I woke up from my dream. And with it, I came back to cognitive reality, thank goodness. And I said to my shame, you know what? I'm not enough. And in doing so, I realized three things. The first thing I've already talked about is a little bit. It's found in Luke 5, verse 32. I have come, not come, to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. God works with broken people. All throughout the Bible, we see him using broken people to move mountains, to perform miracles. But it's not them, it is God and God alone. And in his time here on earth, we see Jesus spending most of his time with those who were deemed inadequate and sinful. God 
works with broken people. The second thing I realized is found in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you are devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When I first started at Pine Hills, I remember moving into my office, and as I was moving, I was giving myself a pep talk, and I was claiming for myself what Paul says when he says, I will become all things to all people in order to save some. I was repeating that every day for probably the whole first year at Pine Hills, which is a really great motto. The problem is, is that I was misinterpreting it. Instead of seeing it as a call to see the needs of others and minister to those needs, what I was doing was I was giving it permission, myself permission, to be governed by anyone and anyone, anyone and everyone who had an opinion on how I should do my job and not leaving any room for God to tell me how to do my job. We need to be governed by one person alone, and that is God. You see the contrast of this between the contrast of Saul as king and David. So we often think, okay, Saul... He disobeyed God. God said, nope, I'm done. But the heart of Saul's disobedience is found in 1 Samuel 15, verse 24. This is Saul speaking here. He says, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Saul's need to be adequate in the eyes of his people. Keep in mind, Saul, when he was first crowned king, he literally ran for the hills. He hid. He didn't feel like he was enough for the job. And when you read it, it kind of seems odd because God seems to select him only because he's a head taller than everyone else. But Saul himself did not believe him capable, but instead he is coerced into the throne by the rest of Israel. And at this point in his rule, God sends him on a mission, and because of his feelings of inadequacy, he sets out to prove to his men and give them what he want, they want instead of obeying God. You cannot serve your feelings of inadequacy. You cannot serve your shame and God at the same time. And when we look at David, David is constantly given the opportunity to kill Saul. And his men even try to convince him. I mean, it's really the most logical option. You have this mad king trying to kill you so you don't take over the throne, the throne that you've been ordained to sit upon. Obviously, the logical option is to 
off with his head. So his men are trying to convince him and coerce him into ending their run for their lives, their years of hiding. But yet in 1 Samuel 24, verse 6 and 7, we see David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. That's the difference between Saul and David. Yes, David was far from perfect. But David was not swayed by feelings of inadequacy, by swayed by feeling like he needed to listen to other men, but aimed to be led by God. For me, my feelings of inadequacy have often paralyzed me. Where my fear of failure has left me sitting there afraid to act, afraid to look more inadequate, afraid to bring any more shame to myself. But as long as I serve my shame, I cannot serve God. And as long as I serve my inadequacy, I can never see how adequate I am in God. And the third thing I realized is found in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. God works with broken people. And in those broken people, when they allow them into their hearts, then God can move mountains. Then God can transform their lives. When I stepped away from serving my shame and accepting the image that God had created in me and is continually creating in me, I am liberated. When God is allowed within, he works miracles in and through us. So this is why Paul can say, I will boast in my weakness. Like so often, I don't know about you guys, but I read this and it just sounds like false humility. But when you look at Bible characters and their lives in contrast, you step back from all the great and awesome things that God did through them, you get the picture of who they were without God and who they are with God. And when you see that bigger picture, you realize without God, we are simply flailing. And we're simply lost. And, I mean, Moses is the perfect example of that. He literally had the same intentions and the same goal, to free Israel from slavery. But without God, he failed miserably and did the opposite. But with God, he was more than enough. God works with broken people. You cannot serve shame and God and 
God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So what does that look like? What does it look like to accept our identity in Christ and be freed from our shame? Well, first of all, I think it's stepping away from the desire to achieve perfection and stepping towards God with shame resilience. Dr. Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of being, believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Notice two things. First of all, notice that the result of shame is the opposite of what God truly intends for us. And second, See how believing you are unworthy of love and belonging distances yourself from the ability to accept grace, to accept what God is offering, to accept freedom. Shame resilience is healthy coping mechanisms to allow ourselves Not that we will never experience shame, because as she points out in her books, we will always be prone to shame. But that when shame appears, that we will have the coping skills necessary to step out from behind our walls and allow the appropriate people and to allow God into our lives. Healthy coping skills like recognizing the new identity that God offers. Healthy coping skills like self-kindness. Like, think about it. We are so polite to other people. But what kind of things do you say to yourself in your own mind? And would God appreciate you calling yourself that? So self-kindness is a healthy coping skill, a part of shame resilience. The second is common humanity. Because oftentimes when we feel inadequate, we see the inadequacy of others. And not only that, we see our own failures, and especially now with Technology, you see the Instagram perfect life or everybody's perfect artwork, which we just saw. But each of these people have been painting and doing art for so long. We don't see the first painting. We don't see the first attempt. And so we often think, oh, I'm the only one that this is, like, it's this sinful that is this broken. But when we step out and realize, no, everybody is just as broken as I am, it allows us to have compassion on ourselves and on others. And the third thing that is useful in combating this perfectionism is mindfulness. 
Mindfulness is basically balance. Balance when it comes to positive emotions. Balance when it comes to negative emotions. To not allow ourselves to just push them aside, but allow ourselves to adequately express them and work through them because the other option is swinging too far the other way and over-experiencing our emotions and letting them take control over us. That's not the goal either. Mindfulness is balancing the emotions as they come and working through them. So we need to practice mindfulness. I think and I believe that a shame-resilient church, and as a shame-resilient church, we will be liberated to, and willing to fully accept God's grace and therefore lead others to that grace. That being able to see ourselves as God sees us then opens our hearts to then see others the way God sees them. When you're hard on yourself, you see others in that same light. You see their imperfections, and then they're, therefore we're like terribly judgmental. But if we can accept God's identity and see the love that he has for us and accept that love, we are then open to loving others the way God has called us to love others. Not superficially, but truly. My favorite section in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. I may be able to speak in the languages of men and even angels, but if I do not have love, I, it will sound like noisy brass. If I have the gift of speaking God's word, and if I understand all the secrets, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I know all things, and if I have the gift of faith, faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give everything I have to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned as a martyr, but do not have love, it will not help me. Love is the key. God's love for us is the key. So let us not be noise. Let us not be simply action. But let us be a church that is filled and overflowing with the Holy Spirit, confident in our identity in Christ. Dear Father in heaven, God, I know this battle with inadequacy isn't over, but I'm that more sure that in you I'm enough. I ask that as this church family, that we each take that step towards you today and accepting, you know, we're not perfect, but you are Lord and you have made us perfect. Help us to accept that every day. And that instead of trying to be perfect enough for you, 
we let you make us perfect. Amen.